God bless you. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Last week we talked uh, for, for the duration of the message on Paul the Apostle. We read his testimony in the book of Acts and also in Galatians, talking about how he came to know Christ. And we talked a little bit about Ephesus. In fact, you saw in the service last Sunday a video about Ephesus. It was known for several things. First of all, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there called the Temple of Artemis. It was built three times, destroyed twice, and built a third time. And its splendor had 127 columns. Have you ever been to the Parthenon in Athens, seen it? Or if you've been to Nashville, Tennessee, and seen the replica, that's a pretty impressive building. But the Parthenon obviously didn't have double-row columns, had single-row. The, the Temple in Ephesus had double-row columns all the way around it, 60 feet high. It was magnificent beautiful. Inside was a uh, wonderful, uh, a beautiful golden statue of, of Artemis or Diana. And I showed you her picture and she's not exactly lovely, but her, her role was to be goddess of fertility. And truthfully, it just means the more sex you have, the more fertile you'll be. And so to worship Diana, you'd come to the temple and practice sexual, every kind of perversion, as well as uh, the attempt to get uh, uh, procreative. And obviously over time, the city became very, very vile. There's other things that were there. If you've ever seen the picture of Ephesus, you've seen a two-story building with columns up front. That was the third largest library in the world in the ancient times, Alexandria, Egypt being the largest. Ephesus had the second largest, somewhere between twelve and 15,000 scrolls. Now, that doesn't sound so much to us today, but when they're handwritten in on parchment, you got twelve to 15,000, that's a pretty good library. Uh, and obviously in Celsius, the, the library of Celsus there was well known. It was also a wonderful place where Paul ministered. It was an important Christian site. If you remember, Paul went there for a period of time, three months, it says in Scripture, in Acts, the book of Acts says three times he was there. Uh, for three months he was there teaching the synagogue until people's hearts became hard that were Jewish and began to talk publicly in the synagogue to refute what he had to say and discourage the believers. And so Paul moved out to something called the school of Tyrannus, now, it, then they didn't have air conditioning, so typically you'd meet early in the morning or later in the evening and not in the heat of the day. So that meant these larger rooms were available if you wanted to meet there, say, from uh, noon till 4, noon till 3. And so it's believed that Paul got low rent and was able to meet in this teaching hall of somebody named Tyrannus. And while he would teach in the mornings, the, the, the Tyrannus gentleman or whoever was there speaking in his behalf would teach in the mornings and the evenings, Paul would get that window when nobody was in there, nobody wanted to be in there except Christians. And for two years, he pastored the church in Ephesus. Now, some of you have been in churches that have a two-year turnover of pastors. If Paul was the one, you'd say, please don't leave now. We, we're just getting into them. Can you imagine? Here's a man caught up the third heaven and heard all the things he's going to teach about Christ directly from the Lord, and he's teaching the class. I don't think three hours would be long enough any day, and he taught there for two years every day. So needless to say, the people at Ephesus had a great training foundation. And Paul had a deep love for these people, but he was also concerned because it was very cosmopolitan. Anywhere you have great wickedness, wickedness is always easier to pull good people down than it is to get good people to proclaim the gospel that lifts people up. And the truth is, over time, wickedness will begin to so infiltrate the church through compromise, the very people who once stood against iniquity now say, well, I, I don't think that's so bad. I don't, well, now, what's wrong with that? When we get to that point, we're on our way down, not up. Because every compromise draws you closer to the enemy, not closer to Christ. Christ calls you to commitment. The world calls you to compromise. Christ calls you to purity. Satan calls you to perversion. And so what we call today progressive is just a new name for sinful perversion. And that happened in Ephesus. In fact, so strong, the Bible says one of the seven letters, the seven churches, says to the church in Ephesus, you, you left, you didn't lose volitionally, you left your first love. You had it, but you walked away from it. Some of you know the horror of divorce. When a mate was with you for 10, 15, 20 years, and one day said, I'm leaving you. That's not, I lost my way home and can't get back. It's I'm telling you to your face, I'm leaving. When you walk away from Christ, it's not by accident. You say, I found somebody I like better than you and something I like to do more than I like serving you. And you walk another direction. And so this church that had a marvelous teacher in Paul and had all the advantages was very cosmopolitan. They had a massive theater 
seated about 25,000 people, and that's why modern scholars can tell by the scope and the footprint of how far the streets and villages ran, uh, houses ran, along with a the theater. They guesstimate in the days of Paul, the city was about 250,000 people. That's a massive city. They've normally figured if a Colosseum held 25,000, you could multiply by 10 and get the population of the area. And so if there's a city, a, a, a Colosseum that holds 25,000, then obviously 250,000 would not be a stretch. It was also at Ephesus that Paul, if you remember in Acts chapter 19, Paul gets to this place. You remember, you remember that over and over in Scripture, he gets to people who, are, who, who need to know that the Spirit has come, but they need to know the gospel. And sometimes our charismatic brethren take this as meaning you have to have the breakout of tongues if you're going to have the presence of the Spirit come on a people. Well, the truth is, remember Joel chapter 2 said the Spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh. And so Acts is a history book to show us that God did what God promised to do, and he gave his Spirit in the very same way to all the people. So nobody said, well, you didn't get what we got, so I don't think you have the real deal. I don't believe you really got the Spirit of God because you didn't have this. And so we know at Pentecost, when God sent his power really on the Jews, but there are all kinds of nations there because of Pentecost, it says when the Spirit of God came, that they began to speak in other languages. It was not glossolalia in a prayer tongue. It was so that it reversed what happened in Genesis 11 with Tower of Babel. In Babel, God confused the languages so that people wouldn't elevate self. In Acts, he said, I'm going to tell the language in all the languages present so Christ can be raised and people will come to know Christ and 3,000 people were saved that day. So it wasn't an opportunity for a charismatic prayer language, prayer gathering. It was an opportunity for God to proclaim the gospel in reverse of, Acts, uh, of Genesis 11. In Acts 2, the word went out to all flesh. But in Acts 9, we know the Spirit of God, it says, came upon Samaritans, uh, came upon Cornelius' house, who was Gentile. And then in Acts 11, came on the Samaritans, the half-breed. And then in Acts 19, we see the Holy Spirit coming on a group of 12 men who were followers of John the Baptist. And when Paul asked them, have you received the Spirit, it, it means simply... Have you been saved and energized and dwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit? They said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Which says what? All we heard was John said, you better repent. The Messiah is coming. And that's what we were baptized in, a baptism of repentance. That's as far as we got. And so in Acts 19, you remember, Paul shared the gospel. Twelve men, it says about twelve men that had been followers of John the Baptist, repentant, looking for the Messiah, heard the gospel, and then were saved. So it's the picture of the Spirit of God coming on all flesh. Jews, Gentile, Samaritans, and those of the Old Testament repentance just waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And so when we pick up Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus, we're going to find out what he has to say, and I want to try to get to verse 3. We'll look at background as we go further, but let's try to get in the text. And I'm going to camp at verse 3 because it's so rich, and if I get through it, it'll be... Thank you. Always good to know there's a believer in the crowd. Well, verse 3. I'm teasing. Here we go. Verse 3. Praise be. And literally the word is blessed be. And, and you ever been to a funeral? Yes. At a funeral you have somebody speak a eulogia. What is that? Somebody will stand up and say a good word about the deceased. The word eulogia was transliterated from Greek. Eu means good. Logos means word. Eulogia means a good word. So here it is, blessed be, say a good word about God the Father. Isn't that what we do in worship? Isn't that what we do in singing? Isn't that what we do when we read scripture? Isn't that what we do in prayer? Father, we praise you and bless you for who you are. Not that I can bless God with giving him anything. I bless him when I say a good word about God Almighty. That's how it starts. That's, that's tall cotton right there. He says, grace to you and peace, verse 2, to God our Father, verse 3. Praise be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the word blessed appears again, but this time we're the recipients because we don't have it to give. God can give to us. He blessed us in Christ with every... Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Mine says... Does yours say spiritual blessing? Does your Bible say spiritual? Well, I got, I got, we got to change that because it's every physical, right? It's every material right? We're in Tulsa now. Come on, work with me. If you trust Christ, you get every material blessing. God doesn't want you to be poor, right? I'm in the wrong church. 
what does it say? He's blessed you where? In every what? Spiritual realm. We're going to look at that in a minute because that's, that, that's radical. Blessed be God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. All blessings come from God. That's because all things begin with God. And I got to tell you, everything going to end with God. The Bible says he is the alpha. That's the first letter of the alphabet. And he's the omega. He's the A and the Z. Nothing comes before A in the alphabet and nothing after Z. And that says nothing comes before him and nothing will be after him. For he was and is and is to come. He's all that is and everything that is came from him who is. And because he is, we is. And because we is, we get to praise him who is, right? Don't ask me to repeat that, but that's good theology. And so the truth is, he is the one who's blessed us. The Bible begins with God as creator. And guess what? In Genesis, it says in the beginning is God. And in Revelation, it says, and he will dwell with his people and be their God. Starts with him and ends with him. I love the fact that in the beginning of Scripture, it talks about Adam and Eve had fellowship with God. In the end of Scripture, it says he's going to tabernacle with us and we will be his people and he shall be our God. Revelation 21 In creation, there is no sin until Adam and Eve welcomes sin into the world. Now think about that. We've seen now the proliferation of sin so much we say, goodness, I sure wish somebody would do something about sin. Christ has and he will. He has done something when he came to give you a chance at redemption, getting sin out of your life, getting salvation in your life, and following the Redeemer. But when he comes again, he's not coming on the back of a humble burrow. He's going to come on the power of a charger as a Lord God Almighty in splendor and glory. And he will come as a righteous judge. He has done something about sin and he's eventually going to eradicate it completely. Creation was without sin until Adam and Eve said, I think we'd like some of that. I think they live to regret that choice. I know we have. In, in heaven, heaven allows nothing sinful. It says in 1 Corinthians 6... 1 Corinthians 6, he will, and he lists a whole bunch of sins, and he says, none of these will be allowed into heaven. You don't have to worry about your neighborhood. You won't need an alarm system. You won't have to lock your doors. And nobody there going to be vile. Satan enters to mar God's creation in the beginning, and Satan is cast down the lake of fire at the end. In the beginning, immorality spreads rapidly when we turn away from God. And in Revelation 21, it says in heaven, nothing immoral can enter. So God is at the start. God has been with us through the journey, but God's certainly going to demand again what he intended in the beginning when he closes out all things. And so the Bible says, blessed be God. Blessed be the one who is the creator and the owner and sustainer, the ruler, redeemer, and the judge. And the only way we can know God, if you think about it, is for him to let himself be known. Now think about Just think with me a minute. Men have tried through the years to get to know God, and they try sometimes through speculation. What's the problem with that? If I started over here and we went all the way around the room until we got through and got over here and I said, everybody, give me your idea of what you think God is. What's the problem with that? Nothing except that we may all be right or we may all be wrong. Why? Because in my flesh, when I speculate, I speculate from my point of reference or from my desire of what I want God to be. Illustration. Some people say, when you tell them, here's what Scripture says, well, my God wouldn't do that. That's called idolatry. See, when Scripture says, here's what God is and does, and you say, my God wouldn't, what you just said, I've created God in my image, and my image, God, wouldn't do that. Now you're an idolater. So so, so when we speculate, what we're really saying is, I would like to have a God that does this for me when I ask for this, and he fits this mold, and he acts this way, and he never breaks out of this because this is the kind of God I'm looking for. That's idolatry. Now I've speculated that God is a being after my imaginations, and the Bible says my imaginations are vain, and my heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? So if we speculate on who God is, we're probably going to come up with a bad answer because there are going to be as many gods as there are opinions. Secondly, we've tried sometimes to rational, a rational view of who God is. Well, if you try rationalism on God by man's rationalism, you're going to give it a headache. Because God's ways are not our ways, and his ways are higher than our ways. And if we try to rationalize, here's what I believe God would do based on my understanding of my search We're going to come up short and frustrated. And you know people used to sit in these seats that are empty. When God didn't fit the mold of what their mind said God ought to do, they said, I'm out. 
So we speculate, some do. Here's who God is. If you doesn't measure up my view of God, I'm done. We rationalize, God ought to do this right here. And when God doesn't do this right here, I'm done. Praise God, there's at least a third option. Not speculation, not rationalization, but revelation. And that's when God, this is the, this is the amazing thing, God became flesh. Now, I, I, I've told you at Christmas, I, I don't, I don't, I, don't ask me to explain that, I just teach it. God, just saying that gives you a headache. God Almighty, God bigger than the universe, God who's eternal, God who cannot be encapsulated, God who told David, don't build me a house of stone. The earth, the world is, is too small to hold my glory. But yet, in a moment in time, he became a, a seed in the womb of a virgin to go through gestation, be born as a baby, and be trapped in one of these for 33 years. That, makes, that, that, that blows rationalism out because that makes no rational sense. And it's going to blow speculation out because why in the world would God come that way? But the Bible says it pleased God. And the Bible says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But then it tells why he did it. So we could behold his glory. What kind of glory? Because he has the glory. Because we beheld the glory of the everlasting God. We beheld the glory of his father. Full of grace and truth. Well, the only way we could really know him is when he comes in form that we can understand from a God that we really want to understand but cannot fathom in our own mind. Well, sadly, in the 21st century, we've decided we've outgrown God. Uh, you, you poor people in this room, I, you're not reading the press because if you were, you wouldn't be in church. The, the, the world says we, we're just deluded. We're trying to reach back to a superstition. God doesn't exist. He's just a fantasy. And, and we keep thinking that salvation's out there somewhere when truly you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You people just not reading the news. Well, this morning, I, wanted, I don't want to take you back to today's news. I want to take you back to the beginning. Because in the beginning, God. And in the end, God. And so what we need to realize is then what did he come to do? We've returned when we reject God. Th think with me just a minute. We call this, we don't, but the world calls this movement progressive. You know why? Because to allure a new generation, you got to make it sound like it's, it's reaching towards something noble. It's moving forward to something that's not trapped in, 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 in spiritual things. It's not trapped in what you can't do. It's not trapped in morality. Just do what you feel led to do. You came from nothing. But you're just an evolutionary process. You're just in the middle between one cell and whatever ultimately is going to be billions of years from now. And so whatever you do now, it has no meaning. And when you die, you just go back in dust. Now, you may come back as a house fly or a bumblebee, but that's okay. And the world says, we're going to teach our young people, and you pay for it, and I do in taxes. We're going to teach our young people evolution is law. It has always been a theory, not even a good one. It's always been a theory, and it totally flies in the face of scripture which says God created now hear me the, the world is not upset with evolution they're not even upset with creation until you realize if there is a creator there is accountability because whatever you make you have the right may I even say the authority to judge did that creation do what I made it to do and so if there's a creator made in the image of God, then we're going to give a count, we're going to give a job review of the three score and ten we were given to say, did I act out the image of the one in whose image I was created? And so when we talk about no God, and that's today, you know this, today we live in a post called a post-Christian era. And if there's no God, think of the gods we've resurrected. See, everything, please hear me. And I, I don't mean to get on a kick. I'm going to get off this. But to understand light, you've got to understand the, the, the pervasive nature of how far darkness has moved in. See, men have always worshipped. That, that, that's the thing that sociology, uh, soci not socialism, but sociology, study of, 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 of mankind, the study of how we act and how we form communities and cities and how we behave. When you look at the various attributes of every civilization and every one of them, there's the desire to worship. 
Now, now why is that true? Because in the beginning we were made by God himself who wanted us to honor him. But when we take him out of the picture, either through willful ignorance, deliberate rebellion, or purely don't know him, we're lost. Then we create gods after our own image that we can use to worship. We look back at Greek mythology and shake our heads and say, how weird. We not really, we're back. We look at the Roman deities and think, how strange. Well, don't, don't, don't think it. Let me just read some of them and you tell me if they're not back in America. So when you read in God we trust on our currency, we need to stop and say, then which God? Which God is the one we trust? For instance, let's see this. We've rejected that there's a God who's a creator. And when we do that, the very thing that God says, he created a male and female. How are we doing with that? When we throw out the fact that there's a divine being who made us male and female, and we say, I don't believe that. Last I read, there's 72 different designations of what a gender might be. Goodness, I'm glad I went to school in the 60s. Biology said there are two. But then we somewhat still held to a Christian ethic that said in the beginning God created two. So when you reject God, you don't move toward progression. You move toward regression. And now there's total confusion. Huh. And then the Bible says something as simple as thou shalt not commit adultery. Guess what? When you cross over the very basic bond of a husband and wife, why, why does that open up every other kind of perversion? Think with me, two reasons. First of all, there's the law of diminishing returns. It's true in drugs, true in alcohol, true in sex, whatever it is. There's a law of diminishing returns. What does that mean? If this, whatever this is, if this really gets me turned on, excited, drinking gets me this level, drug gets me this level, guess what? Each time thereafter that I do this, there's a diminishing return. If that's my goal, it's not quite as exciting. It's not quite as deadening with drinking. It's not quite as numbing with drugs. And so I got to take it up a notch. So the first notch of rejection of marriage is to start wandering with my mind, my eyes, my emotions, get an emotional thing going with somebody else, get, get something going on, on a computer with sights and other things. And so before long, when I've crossed over the line at all, now I've, I've rejected the thing I promised when I said better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health till death do us part, to love and to cherish. Now, now, what happens if I step outside that bond of marriage to fulfill, let's say, sexual gratification? What happens? Now I'm going into zones God never intended, and before long, whatever zone I chose, now that's not even exciting anymore, so I've got to take it a notch further and a notch further. Before long, society wakes up over here doing really awful things, and people say, how did we get there? Did we honor across a nation, thou shalt not commit adultery? H have you been to a movie? Do you read any modern novels? Do you watch anything on television besides the news? And if you watch the news, you're going to see it. Would you say we've honored God's commandment? No. So when you, when you break that down, you're probably, but there's a second reason. What is marriage? And that strange passage in Ephesians where it says, wives submit to your husband, and husbands love that wife like Christ loved the church. And here's what he says. This is a picture of the mystery of the bride of Christ and the groom, Christ, the church and her groom. So when we step across the kiddushin, the holy ground of marriage, what we've really said is, God, I don't even respect what you're doing in the church. And how many churches you know are so busy fighting with each other, they don't have to worry about reaching the loss. They just wonder if they're going to have enough money to keep the lights on for one more good fight. We're not doing good. When you reject God, it affects a lot of things. Have you heard anything about parent abuse? Senior adult abuse, child abuse, spousal abuse. Well, let me just ask, if I'm loving Christ, if I'm loving Janine the way Christ loves the church, am I likely going to black both her eyes and knock out her two front teeth? If I really respect that, that verse that says, fathers don't exasperate your children, but children honor your father and mother in the Lord. So if a child sees me honoring the Lord and honoring their mama and honoring them, though I discipline them and rebuke them when they do wrong, if I'm honoring them with love and lifting them up in prayer and encouraging their hearts to focus on God, is it likely they're going to grow up and just take a pipe and beat the daylights out of me? 
Is it likely they're going to do something that really harms their mama? That's possible there could be a demon that's wrong, but I'm going to tell you it's very unlikely. So when we say, God, we don't like your Ten Commandments. It's God in there, honor father and mother. We, we don't want that one. Don't have any other gods for me. We don't want that one. We don't want any God, period, before, after, behind. We don't want a God at all. So when we reject God, just think with me. I can't take just one of these. I don't I want to preach scripture. But in ancient times in Rome, they had Jupiter. Jupiter was God of oaths, politics, law, and sports. How many of you really think that whoever's in the White House is going to change our country? What's wrong with you people? How many of you think the governor is going to change forever the moral picture of our state? But we have a God that we sure do look to and revere and hope to goodness the God of government will take care of our needs and don't mess with my Social Security and don't you dare mess with my insurance for health care and don't, you need to give me every benefit you can because I, I, I want my government to take care of me. Jupiter was the God of government. And may I say he's the God of sports? Now I'm not going to touch on that one because that'd be, that'd just be rude. But anyway, there's an ancient God named Jupiter. He's the God of politics, law, and sports. Aphrodite's God of sex. I think we've covered her pretty well. Bacchus or Dionysius in Greek was the God of drinking. I don't know if you've been in a Walmart, Kmart. We don't even have Kmart. Walmart, grocery store, farm. I was in a pharmacy the other day. One I frequent on occasion, and John Brown, if they hadn't taken out five rows and four rows deep, and that put all the wine in Bacchus is back. <laughs> Y'all not shopping much, but he's out there. And then when there was Mars, or Ares is the Greek name, the god of war. And we're pretty proficient at that. And then there's Mercury, who's the god of business, finance, and commerce. He's the equivalent of Hermes in Greek, who's the messenger god. And we definitely believe in a God take care of our business. I'm always amazed when we hear about Christmas. We don't hear about the birth of Jesus. We hear how many billions were spent. And Gaia, G-A-I-A, that's Mother Earth. We spend more time worshiping nature than the God who created it. You see, when we stop blessing God, we're open to every virus of of, of God, godlessness. For the rejection of the God opens the door to the, those who are not gods that we revere as gods who will never bring us eternal satisfaction, fulfillment, or salvation. We didn't create God. He created us. The 100th Psalm says, it is he that made us and not we ourselves. We're his people and the sheep of his pasture. Exodus 19, when God spoke to Israel, he said, I bore you out on eagle's wings, and you are to me a peculiar treasure. What does that mean? Kings in ancient days, when they'd bring home the booty from war and all the things they'd captured, they'd line that up. People march in with chests full of stuff. When they bring in the conquered king and the conquered armies, they'd bring in all the wealth they'd taken from the kingdom that had been conquered. And the king would store those in his treasury. But if he had a special guest, he wanted to show his very special treasures. He had this one area, <clears throat> ultimately secure, maybe nothing more than a small chest that says, Of all this wealth, I have these things that are the best of the best. These are my special treasures. God says, The whole earth is mine. The world and they that dwell therein, the heavens declare my handiwork. But he says, Of all of this, you are my very special treasure. We're his people. He made us. He, we, he feeds us. He, he pursues us. He convicts us. He, he bought us. He's forgiven us and redeemed us. And the Bible says over and over we're in Christ. I want you to look with me. If you have your Bible open, I hope you do. You may not want to mark them this morning, mark this morning but let me just give you an example. I touched on this last week. But I want to show you the position where we are now because we know Christ. L look at this. Look at what it says. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, look beginning in verse 3. It says, he has blessed us in Christ. If you look at the last phrase of verse 4, we are blameless in his sight. Verse 5, last phrase or middle of the phrase, we have been adopted through Jesus Christ. Look at, look at the last phrase of verse 6, we are in the beloved. Verse 7, first line, we are, have redemption in him. 
Verse 9, the very last two words, we are in him. He planned us in him, planned good things for us in him. Verse 10, look at the next last uh, phrase. It says, we have been brought together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and on earth, in him. Verse 11, we have also received an inheritance in him. Verse 13. 13 says the gospel of your salvation and when you believed in him. Do you get a theme there? The Bible says we are not just in the world. We are now in Christ Jesus because of what he did for us. He said, I'm the vine, Jesus said in John 15. I'm the vine and you're the branches. What does that mean? A, bra- a, vine, a branch not attached to a vine is going to die. If you've been trimming your hedges and you accidentally clipped a a limb you didn't mean to clip and you come out in a few days and that's pretty major branch, you're going to see that whole area of your bush is dead. Why? If it's not attached to the main part of the bush, it's going to die. When you're not attached to the one who is the life of all life, the strength of life, the power of life, the redemption of life, the, the source of our life, if we're not in him, you're a walking dead man. And so the Bible says, listen, God's the one who blesses us. But I want you to think about it. How in the world, how in the world can this verse start, verse 3, blessed be God. You've ever heard people say, we need to bless God. That, 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 that verse always troubled me until I understood what bless means when you use it of God. Think about it. God doesn't need our, he, he doesn't need anything we got. So, 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 so let me give it an illustration this way. I, I, don't, I don't have any way to truly, abundantly, eternally bless your life. Some of you, and I've been prone to say in a letter, and a word of comment, thank you, bless me. Now, what does that mean? When you said that, that encouraged me. When you gave me that, 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 that uplifted me. When, when you offered that privilege to me, you did something good that encouraged my spirit. But think about it. That, that's one individual to another individual who a moment in time did one act that might, made your day a little better. But if I say using that same verb, I want you to bless God with the same meaning, what are you going to give to God he doesn't have? Is, is God standing on the corner of heaven with a tin cup saying, sure we should bless me? No. Is God depleted in some area that only, only what we give to him is going to restore his authority? No, no, he's not diminished. He's not like a battery. He hadn't run down. So what does the word blessed mean when you talk about God? It means he is blessed in his own personal merit. He's blessed in the scope of his being. He's blessed in the immensity of his glory. He's blessed in the expanse of what he is and what he has made. Martin Luther said, God is praised within himself. If you think about it, there's a marvelous verse that shows us both the word blessed when it speaks of God and blessing of God when it comes to man. God is the blesser, we're the blessed. But in himself, God is blessed because of who he is. Look at, or just think with me, don't turn there, it's day on Ephesians. But listen, Genesis 14, 19, now listen, when Melchizedek, Came out to meet Abraham after he defeated the enemies and brought back his nephew. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine since he was the priest of God most high. Now listen to Genesis 14, 19. Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. So when he came to offer to, to Melchizedek offerings, really going to God... Melchizedek said, blessed be Abram by the God who is most high creator. In other words, Abram, whatever you've been able to accomplish, you know you did it by the power of God. You know that whatever you've enjoyed is God's goodness. You know that whatever you captured in war is because of what God gave you. He allowed to get it. So, so the one side is he received the blessing of God. And then listen to this, verse 20. And then Melchizedek said, blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Out of God's richness, he can pour out waters and streams of blessing. Out of our depravity and need, we need everything God will give because we are poverty smitten because of sin. 
And because God is willing to pour into us once we're redeemed as his children, then we can praise and the only thing we can give God is a word of eulogy, a good word about his glory, not because he's an egomaniac saying, well, I don't know why you don't lift me up. He says, listen, when you lift me up, what you're really doing is acknowledging I am all that I am because of one who loved me before I was and will love me at the age of the ages. And when I lift him up, it draws me up nearer to him. Let me ask you something, husbands. When, you're, when, when you are demonstrating through a gift, a trip, a night out, dinner, whatever it is, when you demonstrate to your mate a moment on a special occasion or just an unexpected occasion, when you demonstrate to your mate that you really do love her and you tell her and you're showing her special attention, does that make you feel further apart from each other? No. In fact, the more you lavish your praise on her for what she is and who she is and what she does, she feels close to you and you feel close to her. Isn't that amazing? When you do that with God, you know what? The more you lavish him with your praise and your blessing and your thanksgiving and your joy and not your list of helps me, help me, bless me, give me's, but thank you. I want to praise you. We honor you. We exalt you. When you do that, guess what? It's not long before you feel so close to God that you just want to stay a while. So the Bible says, listen, as he, if he's our blesser, draw near to him because he loves to bless. Well, real quickly, I want to share with you a couple other things that we've got to quit. Here it is. You understand the Beatitudes talk about blessed, blessed over and over, blessed the poor in spirit, blessed the meek, you know, the blesseds. Uh, in New Testament, the word comes from the word makario. It means to be blessed from within. Blessed from, it means that you've received so much goodness from God, you're really not dependent on anybody else. And, and, and so when the, when the New Testament translation translates happy is, well, that, that, that's, that, that's okay, but that's a step down. Because to be blessed of God means he has filled you up with so much of him and so much of his glory and so much of his gifts and so many of his gifts and so much of his spirit and so much of the joy of your salvation and so much of the freedom you have with sins gone and the cancellation of guilt and, and the joy of a future and a purposeful life and meaning and, and direction and relationships. He just says, I, can I just say it? David did it better than me. He's my shepherd. I have no wants. Blessed from within by the power of God. I think it's interesting. The Bible says we have a blessing waiting on us in heaven that's un incorruptible, undefiled, and does not fade away. Kept in heaven, 1 Peter chapter 1. Years ago, we used to sing a song, and there was a phrase in that song that says something like this. Satan is a liar. I agree with that. Satan is a liar because he tries to make us think that we are paupers when he knows himself we're children of the king. When you draw near to God, he draws near to you. Well, very quickly, the Bible says we have in Christ blessing and we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Now, let me discern and, and separate this just a minute. If you remember scripture, it says God blesses the just and the unjust. Now, hear me. He blesses both the just and the unjust. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. So, so there's a general blessing just because we live in our Father's world. And so he doesn't let the rain fall on these three houses because they're Christian and the rest of the block doesn't get any rain. No. When he sends rain, he sends on everybody. He doesn't just send sunshine in, in special packets down on one household and omits nine around them. Everybody's going to benefit from the sun because God created the sun to bless the earth. And in the earth are his children. So everybody benefits from what his children have. When I was a boy, I used to like to go to a couple of friends' houses and their, their daddy did really well in business and they had the very best in trampolines and the nicest swing sets and the newest bicycles and all the best footballs. And I liked to go to their house. Now, it was for a visit. But as long as I was at their house on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, I got to enjoy the benefits of what their daddy had given his children. There are people in my neighborhood who don't know Christ. But today they're enjoying the benefits of what God's giving his children because they're going to wake up and have rain on the earth. They're going to wake up today and have air to breathe because God just gives it freely. So there's a general blessing, but then there's that wonderful specific blessing. What do I mean by that? It means that the Bible says God gives to his people air, water, food, clothing, all those things. 
But then he says in, in James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from Father of light. Now, what does it mean, perfect gift? That gift which brings fulfillment and completion. There are people that are going to get rain because they just happen to be alive in the world. But when there's showers of blessing on a spiritual on a spiritual level with those who know Christ, we benefit and the world says, I don't even know what you're talking about. When God chooses to send waves of forgiveness to a person who cries out, God, show me mercy, and we feel that burden lifted of guilt and shame, the world says, I don't know what you're talking about. Now I get drunk, and that covers it for a little while. Is that sort of similar? No. God has those blessings he gives to his children that are very special and very unique. And, and by the way, because we have all those blessings from God, we need nothing. Now, I know sometimes we say, I sure do need, well, I mean, you may need, you know, gas in your car, but, but what I'm saying is you're not standing as a pauper saying, I just don't sense God doing and moving me forward in any way. If that's true, maybe you better check your birth certificate. What, what do I mean by that? God, God doesn't frown when people do well in business. But what he's saying is he didn't come to give us spiritual, physical wealth. He came, came to give us spiritual wealth. Now, now, let's use it in a material way. There are people in the world that have great wealth. Bill Gates, Donald Trump, a bunch, bunch of people. Uh, the royal family in Britain, still worth a lot of money. Can, can you imagine Prince Harry or Prince William showing up on Facebook with a GoFundMe page? Can, can you imagine Bill Gates with a GoFundMe page? You'd laugh like you did in church. How crazy. Go fund me. Why? You say, he doesn't need anything. Do you realize when we walk around in poverty of the power of the Spirit, we're not living up to the name by which we're called children of God? If he's called us to live an abundant life to be more than conquerors, surely we ought to demonstrate that in our day-to-day living. Well, very quickly... Once he blesses us, now I want you to look with me because you do need to see this. Open your Bibles. I want to show you this. Once we come to know him, and I'm through looking at this. Once we come to know him, he moves us and he moves our blessing into the zone of the heavenlies. Now look with me. Ephesians chapter 1, look with me, verse 3. Blessed be God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Look with me in verse 20. He demonstrated this power in the Messiah, raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. Chapter 2, look with me in verse 6. Together with Christ Jesus, he's raised us up and he's seated us in the heavens. Chapter 3, verse 10. This is so God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. And then chapter 6, look with me in verse 12. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, against world powers of this darkness, against spiritual forces in the heavens. What does that tell us? It tells, first of all, we've, been, we, we've moved on up. <laughs> so see, where the action is is not here. We're, we're, we're simply seeing the aftermath of the war that's raging around us. We don't have the eyes to see all that's happening in the spiritual realm. The heavens means that dimension of the spiritual that we cannot see but we know very well exists. And the Bible says you and I need to suit up for the armor because there's a battle raging and when the evil day comes and that battle breaks through the earth and I think we're there, we better be ready to stand because it's going to get ugly. I don't know if you noticed this week in, in the Netherlands, the, the, a group of pastors, 250 Christian leaders that signed a document started in, in America to say we believe there are two genders, male and female. 250 people in Netherlands signed it, Christian pastors, Christian lady, Christian professors. And today they very well are facing arrest and very likely going to be charged with crimes against the state for saying there are only two genders and it's in the Netherlands. Do you remember when gay marriage broke out in Europe and we said, well, it'll never come here. What are you going to do when they show up and say, you, you go down at that Baptist church. You, you believe God may male, male, female? That goes against the very stature of the state principles. We're going to arrest you. Listen, there's a war battling out there in the heavens, but the Bible says, look at this, don't miss it. It says he's blessed us with Christ in every way in the heavens. 
He's raised us up from the dead and seated us with him at the right hand in the heavens. It says we now are gathered together with Christ, raised up and seated with him in the heavens. God's multifaceted plan is now being broadcast to those who, even the Bible says, the angels are peering over to see what God has done. And they're in the heavens. You know what, what that means? It means you and I are not permanent here. This is just a place we're passing through. And yet the sad thing, and I'm going to touch on this, I'm going to quit. I'm just going to touch on it. Sad thing, most of the time on Facebook and in testimonies, we're talking about what we have on the earth, not the joy of what we have in the heavens. There are various ways today people are doing very well monetarily, and, that, and that's great. There's no sin against doing well. I, I, I'm going to say this. I, I'm grateful, and you all have taken really good care of me and my family and our staff. But among the world's elite, I wouldn't be considered wealthy, and I'm not disappointed. I'm grateful, and I'll tell you why. People who have great wealth have huge pressure. People with great wealth have huge responsibility because when they're in a position that they're making great wealth, they got there because they're able to build things that produce wealth. And then most of the time that's companies or businesses or plans. And all those people beneath them are looking to them for wise leadership because that leadership is only is what keeps them, everybody under them going well and doing well. Now, now they help by building up the company, but if the guy at the top does something really foolish, then it doesn't matter what you're doing down below because the company's going to go south. And so the Bible warns us that there's nothing, there's nothing immoral with wealth, but if you notice, even in the church, when people start doing well, have you noticed anybody on Facebook saying, I'm so grateful for all that God's doing for me because I'm better able to do for the kingdom than I've ever done before. Do, do you all see that? You see anybody on, on, on Facebook say, I am so grateful because God has poured out this huge financial blessing on us. We're going to be able to do more this year for the kingdom of God than we've ever done before. Am I missing that? And, and so our eyes are not on the heavenlies. Our eyes are on the temporaries. L listen to what scripture says. Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Now that means... If you really pursue wealth above all things, that, that doesn't mean you can't be wealthy. That's not what that means. You know people who their number one God is money. He says, woe to you if that's your number one God because you've received your consolation. That's not what Paul said. Listen, Philippians 4.11. I've learned how to be content, whether it's poor or whether it's in abundance. I've learned how to be content, whatever my circumstances Paul wrote to Timothy, if we have food and clothing, be content with these. Those who want to be rich, however, are going to fall into many temptations. You reckon? Why? Because when I have lots of money, I can go into lots of things a common man can't explore. I'm glad that God limits some of us so we won't get into areas we don't belong. He says, those who, fall in, those who have wealth fall into much temptation come in being ensnared. 1 Timothy 6, 9, they can be ensnared by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin. For the love of money, not money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. First Timothy 6. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Don't, don't put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Put their hope in God, who provides them everything they need. Colossians 3 says, Since you've been raised up with Christ, set your heart on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Now listen to this, Colossians 3.3, 3, you died. Your life is now hidden with God in Christ, Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. The difficulty of the 21st century is our focus has shifted. There was a day when our predecessors always talked about the glory of heaven the splendor of heaven and longing for that land crossing over the river Jordan to the promised land of Canaan. Today we say, I'm not really ready to go. I kind of like it here. C.S. Lewis said this, the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most about the next. It is since Christians have begun thinking less of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this one. When you aim at heaven... You get earth thrown in. When you aim at earth, you get neither. May God help us to realize we are in Christ Jesus, seated in the heavenlies 
with, a, with, a, with an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled. You know why? God is not dependent on anything on Wall Street. He's not dependent on anything on the Chinese economy. He's not dependent on what they do in the Asian realm. God is blessed unto himself. And what he promises he will do. For there is no other God before him, behind him, beside him, or around him. And we are called to honor the Lord our God. May he help us do so. Stand with me, would you? Father, thank you today for the truth of your word. Blessed be God. That's what we can offer by way of praise. Blessed be the God who created us. Thank you. Blessed be the God who found us while we were still sinners and came after us. Thank you. Blessed be the God who offered a means of salvation before you ever created man. The cross was not an afterthought. It was a precursor to creation. Thank you. Now, God, I pray that we'll not become so focused on this present world that we miss seeing the heavenlies. There is a war raging as between God Almighty and Satan having his last great fling before he's bound and cast forever into the lake of fire. I pray for those who are walking wounded because they've been snared by an enemy that's already defeated. He's headed down and he knows it, so he's only trying now to hurt as many as he can because he knows that hurts the heart of God. We don't belong to him. And I believe there are people in this room saying, I'm tired of doing his business. I'm tired of honoring him. He's brought me nothing but heartache and grief and sorrow and pain. I'm done with him. Father, I pray for those today who say, I'm ready to make a break with the enemy because I have heard the, the call of God. And I want to receive his forgiveness. I want to receive his salvation. I want to be camped in the heavenly places so when he comes, it's a local call. God, I pray today for those who need Jesus. Bring them today out of their darkness into the light, away from the bondage and into the freedom that only Christ can give. I believe there are men and women here saying, I'm tired. I'm tired of Satan's, uh, Satan's snares. I, I want to come to Christ. I ask you today if that's you. In fact, I plead with you today if that's you. It's as simple as taking one step toward the aisle and not headed to the back door, but headed to this altar. Put your hand in the hand of a pastor today. A Rocky's here. If you, a lady, you prefer talking to a lady, she's right here at the front. And you say, today I really want to give my life to Jesus, pastor. Then I'm asking you step out right now before I ever finish this prayer. You come right now. Maybe somebody here has other decisions to make. Listen, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to give you an opportunity. Come. Father, I pray today that you'll do what you do best. Draw people. That in these moments we may experience the goodness and glory and grace of God. And today, folks will be set free forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing. Won't you come?